previously on Bullets and Rust. Lucy Talavergee was as clever as she was mysterious. We both found ourselves off guard, and each walked away from the lunch with new information at our disposal. She has less of a motive to blackmail Abner than I thought, but she's undeniably ruthless. I feel tempted to cross her off my suspect list, but, but something's staying my hand. Meanwhile, I followed a lead on the O'Malley case. Killian told me that when he left Kindle alone, he went down to the hotel pool. After all the lies I've received, I could hardly take it on faith. I tried to get security footage, but that was a dead end. Still, I did learn that the pool area was closed during the time Killian said he was swimming. Christ, can't anyone in this case give me a straight answer? And just as I think things can't get any more absurd, Abner calls me in for a chat. His blackmailers escalated threats not only on his life, but his assistant Riley's too. And I've still got no idea who's responsible. So tiny to fit all of this life Today is for my brothers at the old bookshop We talk about the trade and then we drink up Back to the office, losing my high Feels like a It's one thing to have your own life threatened. Some people cower, some stand firm, but whatever you choose to do, it's your neck on the chopping block. When someone threatens the people you care about, well, that can rattle even the toughest sons of bitches in the world. Thus far, Abner hadn't exactly been playing things cool, but he'd managed to keep from panicking. Now, I watched as the dam began to break. Whoever was blackmailing him had sent over a new set of photos, and with them, they'd threatened to cut open his assistant Riley's throat. From the intimacy of the photos, whoever was behind all of this was proving just how close they could get. When did these arrive? This morning. Before I'd even met with Lucy, who before now had been my chief suspect. 
It was also too soon to have been sent after my meeting with Syncorp's founder, Iratu Shimiyoro. He and I had spoken yesterday morning. Whoever had sent these had known that I was involved since at least the previous Saturday. This drastically shortened the list. It's time to give this fucker what he wants. Not yet, Abner. They were outside my apartment. I'm not going to stand by while they kill me. No money's worth that, Adams. I'll pay you what I owe you, but you're off, all right? We're done. This was the wrong move. I couldn't say why, but I knew it in my gut. There was something off about this entire turn of events. All of the other pictures, risque as they had been, there'd been a patience to them. Whoever was behind them was being careful. The threats were vague, almost playful. The photos were taken at a distance. These threats, they were so blunt, so overt, and whoever had photographed Riley, they'd been right outside her house. This was an entirely different level of escalation. And to have done this last Saturday, that was before I'd gotten my best leads, it all just felt... I can't risk this. Clumsy. No. No? We're close to solving this, Abner. What do you mean? Riley looked up, her hands trembling. Look, whoever's behind this, they're trying to scare you off. They haven't gotten stronger. They're desperate. They know I've hired you. And who knows about that? Not many people. Lucy, Kelly Fitzpatrick, Chelsea, Iratu. Uh, anyone else? Riley frowned. There's Lucy's people. They know what she knows. And some people in security know about the packages. They keep a close eye on things in the building. They could be involved. It's not the security people. If they wanted you gone, there are a lot easier ways for them to go about it. Trust me. And guys like that favor a more direct approach. And Lucy's people, well, maybe she's not trying to bring you down herself, but she might have people working for her willing to do this on her behalf. Abner appeared doubtful. Riley looked to be having none of it. Look, the point is, we've spooked whoever it is behind all of this. This is a desperation move. If you give me a few more days, I'll give you a name. I promise you. And then what? Will you have the pictures? Will you have a way to protect me and Riley? I won't have to. We'll call the cops. What if the blackmailer tells the cops what they've learned? What does this person have? Some dirty pictures? The act of blackmail will matter more than that. Trust me. I mean, your company's name is Syncorp. No one's going to care. I don't know. If anything gets in the way of the IPO... Some guy tried to blackmail David Letterman a decade ago. They had letters, pictures, the works. Did you see any of those? Abner shook his head slowly. That's because blackmail became the center of the story. So guess what? People are going to learn that you slept around. Who cares? If we control the way the story breaks, it won't hurt you or the IPO, Abner. You've got to trust me on this. You're asking me to gamble my life and hers. Adams, it's too dangerous. Just a few more days, Abner frowned. He glanced at Riley, who didn't loom nearly so large when she wasn't behind her desk. Here, in his office, she looked fragile, small. I could see why he was tempted to protect her. Abner, give me until the end of the week. If I don't have your answer by Friday, you can cut me loose. He spent the next half minute weighing his options. When he opened his mouth again, Abner sounded like a different man, a humbler one. You've got 48 hours. That's it. What? You're not serious. What he's saying makes sense. They took a picture of me in my fucking underwear, Abner. They're trying to spook us. Well, it worked. I'm not going to push it, but I'd be a fool to let them win when we might be so close to the answer. I'll give Adams here another 48 hours. If he can't get an answer by then, well, I'll make sure that they keep you on. Riley's eyes were like laser beams. I was glad not to be on the receiving end, though maybe I ought to be. After all, this was my idea. You'd really risk my life just so you can keep a hold of this. If I give in now, where does it stop? What if the next step demands that you resign with me? What if they're not satisfied once I'm gone? This person's deranged. There's no telling how far they're willing to go. I hired this detective to put an end to it, and he's uncovered so much. I'm going to give him a chance to finish it. Abner turned towards me. I'm counting on you, Adams. You better not fuck me on this. Trust me, Abner. That's the last thing on my mind. 
I left the synthetic corporation with more worries than I'd had when I came in. The pressure was mounting, and I didn't have much time to break the case. Truthfully, I wasn't even sure why I'd pressured Abner to keep me on it. It wasn't like I didn't have other things occupying my mind right now. Was it the money, or was I too damn proud to let this case slip away? Who can say? But looking back, everything that followed might have played out differently if I hadn't had Abner's blackmail lingering on the back of my mind. I should have just walked away. But pride is a hell of a thing, and I had several hours left before I could pursue my next lead in the Liam O'Malley case. With all that in mind, my thoughts turned back to one of the few people who knew that Abner had hired an independent investigator. The last time I'd spoken to Chelsea, I had to practically force my way through the door. This time, I knocked once and waited. By the shadows underneath the doorway, I could tell when she was looking through the peephole. It's your old friend Zeke, I told her. I've got a few unanswered questions. The lock slid open. A moment later, Chelsea was glaring at me through the open door. On my previous visit, Chelsea had looked somewhat drab. She'd been dressed in casual clothing, hadn't been wearing makeup. She'd looked like a normal person. The young woman who stared out at me now, she looked anything but. She was dressed in a tight, short leather skirt, and what could only be described as half of a shirt. Heavy eyeliner made her resemble a hooker out of the movie Blade Runner, and she wore a tight silver choker around her neck. Going out? I asked. Expecting company. Really? And how would Abner feel about that? Stay around a while. You can ask him yourself. He's the one I'm waiting for. All right, let's make this quick then. Having just left him at Syncorp, I knew that Abner had other things on his mind right now, like trying to talk his assistant Riley from jumping off a ledge. Still, I'd prefer not to cross paths with him again quite so soon. Chelsea waved me inside. Stepping through the doorway, I was amazed at how different it all looked. In the light of day, it looked like a stylish modern apartment. But now, lit by the heavily dimmed lights and a series of candles, the walls were draped by the deep shadows that ran across the floor. Chelsea's appearance gave her a risque, dangerous appeal. The entire apartment felt like an extension of that image. However, that night, my mind was focused on other things, and the whole effect was lost on me. Who did you tell about our last meeting? I asked. Chelsea frowned. No one. Seriously, Chelsea, who did you tell? No one. Not even Abner. You think I want to bring that up? Because there aren't many others that know about me. And yet... I saw a bottle of wine on the counter and had a sudden flash of understanding. Sometimes, little details slip through the cracks. The last time I'd been here, Chelsea had offered me a glass of wine, a very specific wine, in point of fact, the same kind that I'd shared with Lucy today at lunch. What's your relationship with Lucy Talaverger? What? Lucy Talaverger. What's your connection? What makes you think that I have... Don't bullshit me, Chelsea. In truth, it was nothing more than a hunch, but I wasn't about to let her know that. Sometimes, a bluff is all you've got. How did you... Because I'm a professional investigator, it's my job. But facts on a sheet of paper, they don't paint the whole picture, do they? So let's hear it. So let's hear it. She seemed reluctant, but finally she leaned on one arm of her leather sofa and began to explain. I met Lucy when I was going to Stanford. She was my roommate's older sister. Lucy already had a job in the Valley. She drove a nice car and drank fancy wines. We thought she was really cool. But she's also ruthless. You have to be if you want to survive out there. I was already thinking about changing majors when I met her. Before long, I made the switch, computer science to graphic design. When I graduated, one of the local news stations here hired me to make them some on-air graphics. A year later, they laid me off. Budget cuts. I wasn't about to move back home. I have more independence here than I've ever had in my whole life. I've worked too hard to give that up now. You didn't exactly make a traditional career change. I don't need your judgment, Mr. Adams. It's not a judgment, just an observation. Please. I see the way men look at pretty young women. I've seen the way they look at me. I thought I could do this once or twice and pay off a couple bills. Easy. After a while, it becomes a job like anything else. 
People look down on a woman who sells her body for money, but isn't that what everyone else does too? Isn't the guy laying asphalt selling his own flesh and toil? With all due respect, Ms. Westmarch, I'm not here to debate your manifesto on women's liberation. We were talking about your relationship with Lucy Talaverche. Right, well, I'd been living here for less than a month when Abner mentioned that Sincor was trying to lure talent from Silicon Valley. They needed someone with vision, he said, and I remembered my roommate, Ruth. I was still friends with her on Facebook, so I told her about the position. She wasn't interested, but her sister, Lucy? I've never told Abner about any of this, and I can't imagine what he'd do if he found out. He hates her, you know. He has no idea that she and I know each other. Did Lucy ask you for help to set Abner up? What? Lucy had deflected my suspicions earlier, but every time I rounded a corner, the path turned back towards Lucy. Did she ask you for help? She doesn't even know I'm fucking him. What? Lucy and I, we're not close, Mr. Adams. I've seen her twice in the last year, each time for a nice lunch. We talk about California, about Ruth, about old times. And each of us is keen to keep our private lives private. So she has no idea that you and Abner are- Not unless you told her. I didn't tell her anything. Not about you, anyway. Good. Listen, you need to be careful, Adams. I've got a good thing going here, and you're coming awfully close to fucking it all up. So I see. Jesus, how had I gotten so turned around? I'd come to Chelsea again because she was one of the only people who knew that I'd been hired. The connection between her and Lucy, it seemed almost too good to be true. So Lucy, she wasn't the one who connected you and Abner. It wasn't a question, but Chelsea still felt the need to answer it. No, I met Abner five months before I sent her the tip. Another dead end. Right. Well, I'm sorry to bother you. Do me a favor, though. Don't tell Abner I was here. Oh, right. It'll be so hard not to focus on you. I'm just saying. Trust me, Detective. You'll be the last thing we talk about. Investigator. Whatever. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. With a sigh, I made my exit. Abner's case had me all turned around. It was a swamp, a morass of coincidence and double-dealing. I just couldn't make heads or tails of it. And anyway, it was starting to get late. As much as I wanted to put an end to Abner's blackmail, the most important case on my docket was the disappearance of Liam O'Malley. Here, I was truly in the dark. There were hints that someone in the Lee Macaulay crime family might be behind it, their attempt at revenge on the man who'd locked up so many of their people. But that was hardly certain, and Killian hardly looked innocent himself. He had a notorious temper, a habit of beating his wife, and a massive hole in his alibi at the precise time when his son went missing. On the other hand, his wife fared little better. Unlike Killian, she didn't even want a child. The family housekeeper had revealed that, as well as the fact that not all of Kindle's injuries were the result of abuse. No, her taste in lovemaking skewed towards the physically masochistic. Her long history of mental illness wasn't doing her any favors either, and like her husband, she lacked a convincing alibi at the time of Liam's disappearance. Even Kindle's sister, Mercy, had trouble defending her on that point. So, where did that leave me? I knew that one of the Lee Macaulays, George, had been sneaking off to a family safe house in Pittsburgh. That was close enough to keep an eye on, but just far enough away to keep it out of sight of anyone who didn't know where to look. Even if the rest of the family wasn't involved, Maybe George had taken matters into his own hands. It wouldn't be the first time a mid-level family member had screwed things up, trying too hard to be clever. If anyone in the Lee Macaulay organization was involved, it was bound to be George. I had a possibility of confirming him as a suspect tonight, assuming I played my cards right. My face was still covered in bruises, courtesy of the family's enforcer, Quinton Gilletti. Yet, here I was, doing something tremendously, dreadfully stupid. The one saving grace was that George was a weirdo. The same thing that made him a suspect also made him a prime target for my investigation. He was the only member of the family who regularly went out alone. Earlier in the day, I'd arranged a deal with a friend of mine named Jimmy Carter. No, not the president, and yes, he does get that all the time. Jimmy runs a scrapyard on the west side, one of the few not controlled by an organized crime racket. 
That meant that Jimmy had access to cars which couldn't be tied back to anyone, one that could simply disappear once the job was done. Tonight, that was exactly what I needed. I arrived at the scrapyard five minutes after midnight. Jimmy smiled as I pulled up to the small office building he kept on the grounds. I was starting to worry that you might not show. Yeah, I got delayed. It's nothing to worry about. He gave a long, slow nod. Just be careful, all right? The car I've got for you hasn't been kept in the tip-top shape. Do the driver's side airbags still work? Yep. Then it's perfect. Jimmy shrugged and handed me the keys. It's that one over there. On the other side of his office was perhaps the most hideous car I'd ever seen, a mid-90s Buick Skylark. Its boxy edges had been softened by numerous dents and several patches of rust. The entire bottom half seemed to be rotting away. Once upon a time, the car had been painted a light green color. Back then, it had merely been ugly. Now, the car was truly hideous, and the paint that remained had taken on a distinctly vomit-like hue. It was exactly what I was looking for. I climbed inside and turned the key. The engine protested at first, seeming desperate not to start. Then, finally, the whole thing turned. There was a massive roar, like a jet engine smothered in wet towels. The car was the size of a mid-sized boat and maneuvered half as well. Thankfully, I didn't have to drive very far. Most nights, George could be found in one of a few places. The young bastard was notorious. He was lucky the families weren't at war because he made for a painfully easy target. I went cruising down Brook Park Road until I caught sight of his car. Blake had pulled the plates for me. C-R-I-U-S-G-R-G. Curious George. <laughs> it was parked outside one of the family's strip joints, the Silver Stallion, and its bright chrome paint job stood up from the black Cadillacs that the rest of the family favored. <laughs> I hated the kid already. I pulled into another joint about a hundred yards down the street. One of the few good things about the Skylark was that it had bench seats. I slid over and pretended to stare absentmindedly at my phone. Now, it was just a matter of waiting. Sitting there, I looked up the information I already had on George Lee McCauley. Unlike most of his kin, he didn't have much of a rap sheet. He might have been picked up a few times, but never for anything serious. He'd never spent any time in jail. It was hardly a record befitting a member of one of the most powerful crime families in the Midwest. I was expecting him to close out the joint, which meant that I'd be sitting here until sometime after two, but thankfully for me, I saw the door of the stallion open just a few minutes after 1 a.m. I stayed in place until I was certain it was him. He climbed into the driver's seat of his silver Audi and pulled out onto Brook Park Road. Moving back into the driver's seat, I turned the key. We headed west. I made sure to stay far enough behind with my headlights off. I needed George to be completely oblivious to the fact that he was being followed. Right now, there weren't that many cars on the road, but there were just enough for me to avoid looking suspicious. He turned down one of the access roads right beside the airport. If I followed him in, that would be a dead giveaway. Instead, I cruised the entrance, keeping an eye out of my window to see where he went. I watched his car follow the curve of the airport's outer perimeter fence. Cleveland's Hopkins is not a huge airport, and it's nestled in the middle of a neighborhood that might have been here during the last ice age. Planes cruise in here as slow as they can, but even then, the roar of their engines is enough that any house in their flight path has to have specially insulated doors and windows. You might have heard that there are clubs of people who keep track of trains coming along different railroad routes, old eccentrics with CB radios, garages full of model kits. Well, plane spotters aren't as common, but the community exists. It's a mixture of old guys from Parma drinking Cobra 40s and old army vets with their patched-up jackets. They welcome any newcomers with open arms. George must have loved that about them. They embraced him without question. Of course, most of those people had real jobs. They came out here on the weekends. But George, he had all the time in the world. Word was he came out here every few nights, looking for interesting flights, keeping a personal log of every plane he saw. It almost seemed too ridiculous to believe, but here he was, doing just what everyone said. I turned into one of the other access roads and was careful with how I cruised around. I had to find out exactly where he'd parked without him seeing me coming. Thankfully, 
His eyes would be turned up towards the sky. Finally, I saw him about half a mile away. Pay dirt. My heart quickly sank, though. It was quiet out here. Very quiet. The entire surrounding neighborhood was asleep. That meant that the Buick Skylark was going to have trouble sneaking up on anyone. I came to a stop, mauling over what I ought to do next. That was when the wind began to blow. Except, it wasn't the wind. The air began to vibrate. A low rumble enveloped me, one so powerful that it took hold of my bones. A loud scream came from overhead. A 747 rushed by, its wheels screeching as they made contact with the runway. I turned towards George, who was still sitting in his car. He looked to be writing something down. This was it. This would be the way I'd get to him. I waited for the arrival of another large jet. As I waited, I grabbed a ski mask and pulled it over my face. Next, I put on a pair of thick leather gloves. Then, it was just a matter of patience. I didn't have to wait for long. As the deep rumble from the passenger jet began to rattle our windows, I grabbed the wheels and shifted into drive. The engine wasn't what it used to be, but it had enough strength to send us lurching forward. With this little distance, I pushed my foot down hard against the floor. 35 miles an hour seemed like the perfect speed, hard enough to do damage, but not cause any serious injuries. By now, I was less than 100 yards away. As I turned the front of my Skylark towards the middle of George's car, I closed my eyes and hoped that Jimmy was right about the airbags. Modern cars are designed to crumble on impact. Doing so absorbs a massive amount of the kinetic energy that is produced by a hurtling ton of plastic and steel. But the Buick Skylark was from another era. The they-don't-make-them-like-they-used-to era, spoken fondly of by idiots who would rather have an undented bumper than the use of their own legs. Lucky for me, physics favor the car in motion. I slammed into the side of George's car, and the Buick transferred all of its energy into his silver Cadillac. It was like the silver balls in a Newton's cradle, those cute little things that used to be on everyone's desk at work. One ball hits the other, and it transfers all of its energy to the ball on the other side, sending it flying off. George's car spun sideways with a horrible crash. The airbags in the Skylark deployed, and I felt myself jerked harshly against the seatbelt. Thankfully, that was all that happened. As for George, his car was new enough that it would protect him from an impact like that, but his senses were going to be rattled. Unlike me, he'd never seen it coming. I pushed open the car door. Climbing out, I left my engine running, as I had little confidence that it would start up again. Pulling my pistol from my pocket, I ran over to the Cadillac. George was rubbing his head when I opened his door. I pulled him out and tossed him to the ground. Clumsily, he tried to reach for a gun of his own, but I was able to kick it from his hand. I bent down. With one hand holding my pistol, I used the other to grab George by the collar of his shirt. What the hell? Shut up. Please don't kill me. Don't move or I'll blow your head off. Okay. Releasing his collar, I reached into his jacket pockets. I pulled out a baggie full of coke. My wallet's in the glove box, man. I thought I told you to shut up. Sorry! I risked a quick glance over my shoulder. My car was still drivable, though there was notable damage to the front end. I'd have to hoof it back to Jimmy's place. Thankfully, George's ride was fucked. He wasn't going anywhere fast. I turned back to him and got down to business. Every minute I was here was tempting fate. Hopefully, he wouldn't be able to make me, and if I played my cards right, he wouldn't even know this was about the O'Malley case. That meant that I had to be very careful of how I asked my questions. All right, George, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to ask you some questions. Answer them quickly, and you don't get hurt. But you better not lie to me, George, because that would make me upset. And I'm very good at knowing when people are lying. You got me? I pressed my gun up against his cheek, just hard enough that he could feel the pressure on his teeth. It was the sort of thing that could shake even the most hardcore badass, and George was hardly that. He'd grown up in a place of comfort, privilege. He was soft. He'd never encountered anything to prepare him for a gun being pressed into his face like this. I won't, I promise. Good. Now, what's Antonio moving out of Amici? Amici was the Limacoli's restaurant in Little Italy, the one I had visited earlier on. I already knew that that's where they smuggled their heroin from. I just needed to know if George was trying to lie to me. If he did, I was going to make him understand that there was a penalty for dishonesty. Whenever you interrogate someone, 
you want to keep the other side off balance. Sometimes you ask questions for which you already know the answers. Sometimes you reveal little bits of information you already know. You never want them to be quite sure about what you know already and what you're trying to figure out. Come on, George. I asked you a question. You're asking me to give away family business. That's right. Do you know what they'll do to me if I tell you that crap? Well, at least you've got a chance with them, George. Me? Huh. Let me ask you this. What do you think I'm going to do to you if I don't get the answers I'm looking for? George gulped and nodded his head. Sure, right, right. I, I look, I'm, I'm not really a part of the business there. I know, but that hardly makes you innocent, so let's start talking. I pushed the gun into his cheek a little harder and pulled back on the hammer. When he heard the metal click, the color drained from George's face. It's drugs, okay? They smuggle drugs. Heroin, George. They're moving heroin. He paused and looked at me. But if you really know that, why did that? I smacked him on the back of the head with my free hand. I know a lot of things, George. I just need you to fill in some gaps. Got it? He nodded warily. Good, I said. Let's try another one. Who are they buying the heroin from? I saw George wince. This was privileged information, the kind of thing people got killed over. But I had to make sure that I disguised my true purpose. Mostly it comes from overseas, a British guy, Campbell. I nodded. Back when I was on the force, a significant number of our cases involved drug-related violence, and some of the feuds could follow guys from city to city. The name Campbell was familiar. He'd sold dope to Chicago outfits, too. Good. Now why are the Lee Macaulays trying to start a fight with Pittsburgh? What? They're not trying to- I know about your little trips, George. The moment I said that, I saw his eyes go wide. Is, is that what this is about? What do you think? Look, I, I was just- Did you think that you could set up a safe house right outside of Pittsburgh without being noticed? That you could muscle your way into another market without there being a price? No, that's not- Do I look stupid to you, George? No. So why are you trying to bullshit me? I'm not. I promise. I don't believe you, George. And you know what happens when I can't trust you anymore? I shifted the barrel of the gun a couple inches higher. Now it was pressed right against his temple. I'm not lying. There aren't any drugs. That doesn't seem likely, George. You've been going there an awful lot recently. It seems like whatever is there is awfully important. It's not drugs. Please, I swear. Not drugs, huh? Then what is it? Was he really about to confess? Was this the break I'd been looking for? It's hard to explain. You've got one chance to try, George. If I were you, I would choose my next words very carefully. I wasn't supposed to... L look, please don't kill me. That all depends on you, George. I'm sorry, okay? Please tell Fish that I'm sorry. Fish? As in Little Fish, the family enforcer? Was he mistaking me for a tough hired by his own family? My initial hunch had been right. Whatever was going on in Pittsburgh, it wasn't sanctioned by the family. I held my breath for whatever came next. What's going on with the safe house, George? It was just a little money, okay? Small time stuff. Not even enough to get missed. Money? Fuck. Was that all this was? Do you really think I'm that stupid, George? That's how it started. That's what I'm saying. I just thought I'd park a little money for myself. You know, my own little side hustle. Then this guy comes up to us. He's been buying guns from New York, but they're running short. He wonders if we can make up the shortfall. Little Fish, he still thinks it's the 90s. You know, he's got more hardware than we can use, and it's just gathering dust. So yeah, we moved a little iron. But only when the customers couldn't get it from anyone else. We never cut into anyone else's business. I swear to God, that's all we ever did. You're a fucking idiot. Do you know that? So, he wasn't the one behind Liam's disappearance. The Pittsburgh safe house was just another dead end. It looked more and more obvious that the Lee Macaulays weren't behind this after all. Now, I si Now, I just had to extricate myself from this situation without getting killed. I grabbed George's collar again. He gulped as I pulled him a few inches up off the ground. I, listen, I'm sorry. Really, will you tell Little Fish that I'm sorry? <laughs> if he knew what you were doing, you'd already be dead. Take this as a warning. Stay the fuck out of Pittsburgh. Next time, we won't be so gentle. 
That ought to be enough for George to think that another syndicate was brushing him off. Hopefully, it would also be enough to convince him not to go running to his own family, trying to tell them what had happened. It would be easy for him to explain the damage to his car. An accident. Hell, he could even say it was a hit and run. Whatever he said, my name would never be attached. George, I want you to know that the only reason you're walking out of here is the respect we have for your father. You understand? I let go of his collar and he fell back several inches to the ground. I backed away as quickly as I could while being sure of my footing. I'd taken his gun, but he probably had another hidden somewhere. I was in no mood to get shot at. Climbing back into the car, I pulled away as fast as I could. As I drove down another access road, I saw George in the rearview mirror. <laughs> the kid was still lying on the ground right where I'd left him. With the scare I gave him? Who knows? He might have spent half the night there. It didn't matter much to me. What did matter was that I still had no idea who'd actually taken Liam. My list of suspects was getting shorter by the day, and it was getting harder and harder to imagine that the kid was still alive. Son of a bitch, I muttered, tearing off my mask. Once again, it was time to put the O'Malley's under the microscope. Realistically, they were the only suspects I had left. Realizing that, my stomach churned. Why the fuck had I allowed myself to get talked into this? It was just after 2 a.m. when I walked through the entranceway of my office, checking my Dropbox. It was empty again. I made my way up the stairs to my agency and noticed that Sam had left the lights on. At least, that was what I thought. When I opened the door, I found her still sitting behind the desk. What the hell are you doing here? It's the middle of the night. Shouldn't you be at home? I'm trying to figure out how you keep your files organized. The system doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not chronological or alphabetical. That was Linda's system, your predecessor. She was eccentric. Well, I'm reorganizing it in a way that isn't crazy. If I'm going to be in charge of running the office side of this, I need to know how to find stuff. As long as we can find the files that need to be found. I love the stuff about Petrovsky on your desk, by the way. You can look at it tomorrow. I'll look at it now. It's pretty late. I know. That's why I told you to go home. You never told me to go home. Didn't I? I could have sworn I just said that. Nope. You just asked me why I was still here. Alright, fine. Go home, Sam. I want to get this done first. What are you trying to do? Put me out of business by racking up overtime? I don't know. Do I get overtime? Who knows? Listen, I'm going to go look at the Petrovsky file. Don't stay here all night, okay? I won't. All right. I'm, I'm going to... I'm going. God, why had I turned into such a stumbling mess? I was tripping myself up. I don't normally do that, even when I'm exhausted. Maybe all this stress was finally taking it out of me. Regardless, I retreated to the safety of my private office, locking the door behind me. It only took a few moments for me to mix myself a Marconi wireless. A double. Settling into the chair behind my desk, I cradled the tumbler in one hand and grabbed Igor's file with the other. Pulling it open, I was curious about what Sam had uncovered on Mr. Petrovsky. As it turned out, it wasn't very much. There were property records, including a current address near University Circle, not exactly the neighborhood I'd expect to find someone like him. If he didn't live near Kinsman, why the hell did he care about Spence buying property there? Any other time, I might have been able to sort it out. However, my eyelids were heavy and my, my vision was blurred. I finished my drink and decided to close my eyes for a few moments. I woke up a few hours later. A pair of muscle cars were rushing down Lorraine Avenue. Rubbing my face, I hobbled over to the couch. I might have sat down and gone to sleep, but I felt a sudden urgency for my bladder. I walked out of the private office and into the reception area. There, I found Sam, asleep at the desk, surrounded by a pile of case files. Bending over, I tapped my fingers on her shoulder. What? Hey, kiddo, wake up. What time is it? I checked my watch. It's after three. In the morning? <laughs> I laughed and put my hand around her elbow. With a slight tug, I helped her up onto her feet. She swayed a little, but she kept her balance. 
It looks like we're both a little too pig-headed for our own good. Speak for yourself. Okay. Listen, are you going to be able to drive home? Because I have a... Yeah, sure. Yeah, I just gotta... I need a minute to wake up. I've got a couch. No. Her voice became suddenly firm. It caught me slightly off guard. All right, all right. I just... I just don't like sleeping somewhere I can't control. It's just a thing. Fine. I was just offering. I just need a minute. For a moment, we were both trapped in an awkward silence. We didn't know each other well enough yet for small talk, and she never seemed to share that much about herself. Desperate to cut the tension, she looked at me and asked about the one thing that we shared. The work. So how'd it go looking at the Prashovsky file? I need to look over it with a clear head. Right now it looks like another dead end. He doesn't even live in that part of town. Yeah, but did you see his property listing? No, I said, shaking my head. Wordlessly, Sam stalked into my office and grabbed the file from my desk. She flipped it open to one of the last pages. This. There was a list of properties under Igor's name, a list she'd gotten from the county registrar. I'd flipped by it almost without looking, but now that it was smack dab in front of me, I saw the same thing that Sam did. Suddenly, I no longer felt quite as tired. There were several kinsmen addresses there, but most of them were further down the road than Spence had been willing to travel, closer to Shaker Heights. He had a good number of listings, all lined up in a row. On paper, it looked like a nice little stretch of real estate. But the document also listed the closing prices, several of which Sam had highlighted, and it was clear that Igor had paid out the nose for these places. It would be hard for him to turn much of a profit based off what he owed, the next page was a list of Spence's properties, and he'd managed to acquire the same amount of land at a fraction of the price. He could undercut Petrovsky while still earning a healthy profit, and he was undoubtedly making it difficult for Petrovsky to lock in his investors, who were looking for the safest investment they could find. Both of them were looking for developers. And of course, Petrovsky hadn't bought these places by going to a bank. He had connections to the Russian mob, not exactly the kind of people who have patience for late payments. If Petrovsky was leveraged too heavily with them, he might have a different kind of pressure to safeguard his investment. I'd have to look into it. That's good work. Of course, we have to be careful. There's always a chance that it's a different Petrovsky. It's not. Her voice conveyed a sense of absolute certainty. How can you be so sure? Because I looked up the records. There's only one Petrovsky with a Y at the end of his name in this city. There's a bunch of Petrovskys with an I at the end, but only one with a Y. Huh. It looks like Petrovsky's literally made a name for himself. That's good work, Sam. Thanks, boss. Well, looks like I have an appointment tomorrow. Looks like... Now, seriously, it's time for you to go home. All right. I'll see you tomorrow. Sure, boss. Whatever you say. We walked out the door together. Sam went off towards the parking lot behind the building while I got into my car across the street. I needed a night in my own bed. At that moment, I felt glad that I had hired her. Little did I realize that what Sam had discovered was about to lead me to a trail of blood. Of course, that's the nature of this business. We don't tend to deal with nice, friendly people. Those people, they go somewhere else. My alarm cut through the air. I sat up in bed, the urge to sleep still strong. However, it faded quickly as I made my way across the bedroom and into the shower. It was Wednesday, midway through the week. Friday loomed, the day when Killian was expected to begin the trial, one that would shape the rest of his career as well as the city's future. If I still hadn't found Liam by then, there was no telling what would happen. However, my suspicions had turned sharply back on both him and his wife. Last night I'd eliminated the last possible lead into organized crime. O'Malley might be hated by the Limacoli crime family, but they weren't the ones who had kidnapped his kid. I was also worried about Igor Petrovsky. Last night, Sam had shown me just how precarious his financial situation really was, and while I'd gotten a warning to keep my nose out of the family business, Michael Trovolone himself had pointed me squarely in Igor's direction. If the head of the Trovolone crime family believed that he was involved, that was something worth looking into. Now it was time to get answers and there was no time like the present. I decided to head towards Igor first. That one was a little bit more straightforward. I would circle back towards Killian later in the day, 
once I was 100% awake. Right now, my attention was focused on the murder of Spencer Ghent. He might have been little more than a mid-level goon, but even a life like that is enough to leave a gaping wound in the lives of those who knew him. Or loved him. His widow, Justine, was out for blood. I couldn't deny a sense of trepidation involving this case. I couldn't deny a sense of trepidation involving this case. If there hadn't been Abner's blackmail, if I wasn't in charge of finding Liam O'Malley, would it have taken me this long to get to the bottom of it? It was hard to say, but somewhere inside I must have known that I was dragging my feet. I knew the consequences of giving Justine the name she was looking for. It wasn't just because she was going to do her best to get revenge. It was also because that revenge was likely to get her killed. I'd been sleeping with Justine, but I didn't love her. But I realized then that it was undeniable how important she was to me. I didn't want her in the ground besides her dead husband. She didn't deserve that. But that was the rub. Because what we deserve, that doesn't matter. This world is a capricious place, and every moment that I failed to provide her with a name, Justine's thirst for vengeance grew, bit by bit, destroying the woman I knew. Now, armed with a name that stood a good chance of belonging to the man responsible, I found myself filled with a renewed sense of purpose. If there was a way I could keep Justine from catching a bullet, I needed to find it. Fast. Igor proved much easier to track down. His home address was listed on the property records he'd filed with the county. Pulling up outside his home, I saw a black Mercedes-Benz G-Class sitting in the driveway. The G-Class are a favorite of the Russian mob, though they look absolutely hideous, like the malformed love child of a Lexus and a Jeep. Still, it was a good indication that Igor was home. There were a couple different ways that I could approach him. I could create a disturbance and lure him outside. I could call his number, threaten him to meet me. But in the end, sometimes the most direct approach is the one that works best. I walked up Igor's front stoop and rang the bell. I'd already turned on the voice recorder on my phone, and I kept my hand in my jacket pocket, fingers wrapped around the handle of my pistol. I readjusted my grip while I waited for Igor to open the door. I needed to be ready, no matter what happened next. Finally, the door swung open. From inside, a short, gray-haired man stared out at me. Yes? Igor Petrovsky. There was a subtle shift in his posture. Relaxed muscles tightened. His eyes became immediately more alert. He inspected my face, but remained totally still. Who wants to know about Igor Petrovsky? Name's Adams. I'm an independent investigator. I'm working a case, and the name Petrovsky keeps popping up, as well as other information. What kind of information? The kind I could only share with Igor Petrovsky himself, in private. How he uses that information, well, that's his business. The old man leaned forward, turning his head to look up and down the street. He glanced across the road at my car. That yours? Yep. You say you're a private dick, huh? Let's see some ID. Independent investigator. What's the difference? A detective's a cop. An investigator operates on their own. I've got my own rules. I'm not a fucking pig. His eyes ran over my shoulders before snapping back towards my face. Really? Because you carry yourself like a cop. Yeah, old habits die hard. Are we going to talk or not? Igor licked his lips. He made another quick glance up the street, then he stepped back and waved for me to come inside. All right, come on. The front of his house was small, comfy. Two large easy chairs faced the TV beside an ottoman and a fireplace. Igor never offered me a seat, and he made no motion to sit himself. Instead, he kept his back towards the wall and his eyes on me. So, let's get down to it, yes? First, you need to confirm that you're really Igor Petrovsky. Petrovsky with a Y. I'm a him, and I do not like wasting time by playing games. All right, then. Let's talk about the murder of Spencer Ghent. The moment Spence's name crossed my lips, Igor's eyes went wide. The man actually flinched, as if I'd moved to hit him. He took a half-step back, his eyes turning towards my jacket pocket. It was only now that he realized that I was holding a gun. Have you come to avenge him? 
I've come for information, nothing more. But I'm not going to be shy about getting it. Do you understand? Who sent you? That's not important. It's important to me. You might have considered that before. If you're hoping to hurt me, to kill me... If that's what I wanted, I wouldn't have come through the door. Trust me, Igor, I'm the easiest way out of this. But that means no bullshit. He paused, glancing once more at my jacket pocket. His eyes were quick, and a lesser man might have missed his quick glance towards the nearest easy chair, the one with the ottoman. He probably had a piece hidden somewhere nearby. If I let him, he'd shoot me, claiming I broke in. Of course, the Russian mob didn't have much pull here these days, so that probably wouldn't work. But you never know. Maybe if he got lucky, he could bribe just the right people. Igor, all I want is to talk about Spence. You don't have to do anything stupid here. No one has to get hurt. People always get hurt when men like you are involved. I'm not a hitman, Igor, and I'm not the one you need to be worried about. Now, about Spence. I don't know anything. What do you mean? I've never even heard of him before. Really? Really. This turn was hardly surprising, though he'd already revealed that he knew something. Something that terrified him. Guys like this could pretend to have a spine when they were cornered, but it was all bullshit. I just needed to know how hard to push. If I came on too hard, he'd reach for his own weapon and, well, then only one of us would be walking out of here. Fine, Igor. I believe you. Really? Yeah, really. But before I go, I think there's a story that you ought to hear. What kind of story? The kind that could save your life. Igor fidgeted, but he kept his eyes locked on mine. See, there used to be this guy, Spence. I guess you never heard of him. Now, Spence, he was a mid-level enforcer for a group of, well, let's call them unorthodox businessmen. Spence was good at what he did, but he wasn't family. He was never going to rise much higher, not without Italian blood running through his veins, and there's not much he can do about that. So our guy, Spence, do you know what he does? He decides to look into starting his own business. Soon, he discovers there are some amazing opportunities in real estate. That is, if one is willing to throw their weight around. And Spence, he can throw his weight around, Igor. As a mid-level enforcer, that's pretty much his specialty. So Spence, he starts buying land, talking to developers, making connections. But this activity, it doesn't go unnoticed. You see, some of these developers have been talking to someone else, someone who had opportunities of their own, but weren't quite as willing to, let's call it, twist some arms. And that someone else, they might owe money to the wrong sort of people, the sort of people you don't want to owe money to. However, the other guy's in luck. You see, Spence is doing this on his own. It's not related to family business. This rival businessman, he figures he can stop Spence by going through the family. Hell, he might even go to the family directly, seeing if they'll hold Spence back. And that's when our businessman learns that the family intends to stay out of it, one way or the other. He figures this makes Spence fair game, that the family won't have his back. So, he hires someone else, someone who will clean things up for him. Spence, he's removed from the picture. Now, the businessman can lure back all the developers who started getting into bed with Spence. Hell, they might even have some added incentive for doing business. Only... There's a problem. What problem? See, there's a reason that no one else had developed this area. Why neither of the two local families had decided to move in. There was a third group. One that's gone silent recently. The Russians aren't coming back. I talked to them myself. I shook my head and held up a finger. Story time's not done, Igor. This third group, they've pulled back. And Spence's family was interested in expanding. However... Making moves like that, it's dangerous, especially if you're not quite sure what the third party is looking into. If you're a member of the family, you're not going to make a move like that, not overtly. Even if the third party isn't interested in coming back, being too overt, that might upset a delicate balance. Better to do things slowly, behind closed doors, under the table. 
They might even go to the trouble of getting private assurances that it would be safe for one of their people to start buying up property on their behalf. Not a family member, of course. That would be too obvious. But someone close, someone they could trust, someone that was willing to make it look like they were going into business for themselves. And it was all going so well until someone else made the wrong sort of assumption. The family was hardly going to admit to a stranger that they were the ones behind it all, but there was a lot of money spent on this property for a mid-level guy like Spence. But... And now Spence is dead, and the family is furious. Of course, they can't make a move directly. They're still trying to keep this on the down low, but they're looking for a way to avenge their comrade. I... I didn't know. I thought Spence was working for himself, I swear. That's cold comfort to a corpse, Igor. I'd never cross the Limacolais. <laughs> well, you did that already, Igor. The fact that you didn't know it is the only reason you're still alive. Please. There has to be a way that I can make this right. That's why I'm here, Igor. To set things right. See, I was hired by... <laughs> Well, let's say it's a third party, one not interested in seeing another mob war. They want to put the fire out, and they're willing to look the other way on whoever might have ordered this hit, as long as they find out who it was that pulled the trigger. That would allow us all to put this thing to bed, do you understand? This town doesn't need to turn red, Igor. I was insinuating an awful lot that the Russians were selling their territory to the Limacolis in secret, that they hoped to kill the person who shot Spence to keep the deal in place. I actually haven't said any of that directly. I let Igor's imagination fill in the gaps. Igor, what I need is the name of the man that you hired. No. No? He shook his head vigorously. He'll kill me if I tell you. That's only if he finds out. I can keep a secret. It's hardly keeping a secret if I tell you. Touché. I almost admired his quick thinking there, but I was also pressed for time. Listen, if it makes it any easier, you can always tell yourself that it was your neck or his. I thought you said that you weren't... I'm not, but if I don't get that name, I won't be the last one to pay you a house call. And the other guys? They're not going to waste time knocking on the front door. Igor gulped. I saw him weighing his options. They were all terrible. If only he'd known how much of my posturing was bluff and bullshit. Finally, he leaned forward and said the name. It was hardly louder than a whisper, and the first time he said it, I could hardly believe it. That it is. You can't be serious. I am. Now just please keep me out of this. I didn't bring you into it, Igor. You're the one who paid to have another man killed. But I'm not going to sell you out. Not as long as this name is legit. I hope you're smart enough to know how stupid it would be to lie to me about this. That's the name. It better be. I swear it on my mother's life. Swear it on your own. That's who they'll come looking for if this is a load of goods. Igor repeated the name, louder and more clearly this time. Even then, I could hardly believe it. That's who killed Mr. Gent. I paid 15000 all in cash. With that, my business with Igor was done. Even with the name, my problems weren't over. Now I knew the name, but if I told Justine, I was even more confident that she'd end up in a body bag. When Igor had said the name, my stomach twisted, my throat had gone dry. It felt like this was all a cosmic joke, and I was the punchline. There are some problems that aren't solved even when you know the answer. I knew who had killed Spence Ghent, and I began to wonder if that bit of knowledge was about to get me killed. Bullets and Rust is written, recorded, and edited by Abraham Dunn. The theme music is written and performed by Avril McAnally. The cast for this episode was... Charles as George Lee McCauley. Dave Fair as Jimmy Carter. Billy Halal 
as Igor Petrovsky. Alexandria Marshall as Riley Parker. Colin McCormick as Abner Forrest. Bridget Papaginidis as Samantha Larkin. Lucy Virginia as Chelsea Westmarch. It should go without saying, but this series is entirely fictional, as are its characters. Any claims of resemblance to actual people says more about the person making them than it does about this show. This has been a Needle Drop production. Next time on Bullets and Rust, Igor gave me the name of the person who killed Spence, but there's no way I can tell Justine without her getting herself killed. In fact, there's only one way I can think of to use this information, and it's a case of high risk, high reward. I also need to speak to Killian again. He's lied to me throughout the entire investigation. It's time I got some answers. With that, and another vital clue, I think I may finally have figured out what happened to Liam O'Malley, but proving it is going to cost me. Dearly. All that, and more, on the next episode of Bullets and Rust.